Hello, I'm Carl Weinberg, editor of the Organization of American Historians magazine of history. During the sesquicentennial commemoration of the Civil War, the OAH is committed to bringing the best current thinking on this complex era to a wide audience. For the next five years, we will explore the war from its beginnings through its aftermath. As part of this goal, the OAH is pleased to offer a series of podcast conversations with distinguished historians. During 2011, we will focus on the origins of the conflict. I'm talking today with Elizabeth R. Varon. She is professor of history at the University of Virginia. Her books include We Mean to Be Counted, White Women and Politics in Antebellum, Virginia, published by University of North Carolina Press, Southern Lady, Yankee Spy, The True Story of Elizabeth Van Lew, A Union Agent in the Heart of the Confederacy, published by Oxford University Press, and most recently, Disunion, The Coming of the American Civil War, 1789 to 1859. Varon is currently writing Appomattox, Victory, Defeat, and Freedom at the End of the Civil War, due out from Oxford University Press in 2013. Her article for the April 2011 issue of the OAH Magazine of History is entitled Gender History and the Origins of the Civil War. Liz, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Great to be here. I'd like to start with something that you wrote in an article you did recently for the New York Times in their disunion series that they've been running to commemorate the sesquicentennial of the Civil War. You began your article uh, with the following line. What do women have to do with the origins of the Civil War? Growing up in Virginia in the 1970s, I often heard this answer, nothing. So my first question would be, what got you interested in a subject in which women allegedly played no role? What got me interested in the Civil War, in other words? That's well, right. Well, uh, my parents are immigrants from Germany and Turkey, and like many immigrant parents, they sort of felt it their duty to make sure we all got to know the history of the country in which we found ourselves. They settled in northern Virginia, which is where I grew up, went to the public schools there. And uh, so they took me around dutifully to the great historic sites in that area, Mount Vernon and uh, south to Williamsburg and Bull Run and you name it. And I got the history bug that way, really, by encountering the, the landscape and, and the sort of wonderful public history resources in, in Virginia. And I found that many of my friends who were Virginians of many generations standing sort of took that local history for granted, but, but my parents didn't. And, uh, and so I got, I got hooked that way. And Northern Virginia is an odd sort of place, very much uh, on the border uh, of North and South uh, then and now. And so questions of Southern identity, of whether uh, uh, Northern Virginia was the South, of uh, who uh, uh, was, was Southern and what that meant, sort of captured my imagination at an early age, too. And the interest in women came from really watching my own mother get involved in partisan politics in Virginia in the uh, 80s and 90s as a sort of Democrat trying to turn that Northern Virginia quadrant blue, uh, as it were, and seeing how much women were the foot soldiers of the parties uh, in the local setting. And, and I got interested in the history of, of that. Uh, and, and that uh, was an interest that I carried with me to graduate school at Yale. In your magazine article, you make the following statement. Gone are the days when all we might do was add women and stir, leavening the political history narrative with a few female actors and a comment here and there about gender conventions. So 
there's a new gender history of the Civil War that you're writing about. Can you tell us a little bit about how it's different than the way this history used to be written? Well, let me focus particularly on the origins of the war because the, the vast gender history of the warriors itself is, is its own topic. Uh, in a general sense, speaking about the war era, what I meant was that we can go beyond saying, okay, the story here is one of politicians and soldiers and we can add Clara Barton or Harriet Tubman and that's as good as we can do. I'm proposing instead that because of a wealth of scholarship of the last few generations, there are now gendered narratives, grand narratives we can tell. One of those gendered grand narratives is a story of the divergence of gender conventions in the North and in the South. This is driven largely by the market revolution uh, and uh, the rise in the North of abolitionism and women's rights are the two most obvious sort of signs of that divergence. Uh, no such movements exist in the South, but by no means the only ones. So uh, the, uh, diverging gender conventions is a fascinating uh, uh, story, which uh, this scholarship has mapped out. A second grand narrative, if you will, is a story of the politicization of women, the breakdown of separate spheres, uh, of women's uh, increasing involvement in partisan and sectional debates, particularly the slavery debates. Uh, third narrative, again, is really about the, the perceived incompatibility of the two sections as their gender conventions diverge, the perception that the gender conventions of the two sections are, are uh, antagonistic. Uh, and, uh, and, and this is something we see very much in, in the political rhetoric of the time. And perhaps the most important development in recent years has been to see uh, the history of masculinity as uh, central to all of this, to observe that the men of the period were gendered beings, that we can look at the rivalry of competing masculinities in political rhetoric, and that a study of masculinity can illuminate core questions, such as how slaveholders mobilized non-slaveholders to support secession, how men fought, how they were enlisted, why they stayed in the ranks. These are gender history questions, or certainly can be seen profitably as such. In the article, in order to illustrate uh, this new history, you focus on two case studies. Uh, the first is the story of the Grimke sisters, Sarah and Angelina, uh, daughters of wealthy slaveholders uh, in South Carolina. And, uh, and you say that there's kind of a standard story that includes the Grimke sisters in the history of the time. But then there's also another account that puts the Grimkeys at the center of American politics. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. The Grimkeys are fascinating characters, South Carolina women uh, of an elite slaveholding family who abjure that uh, social milieu and its political orthodoxies come under the influence of, of Quakerism and of abolitionism in, in time they spend in the North, uh, become sort of willing exiles from the South and key uh, proponents of Garrisonian immediatism, and they are central to a very important narrative of the emergence from abolitionism of the women's rights movement. As abolitionist women encounter sexism within the anti-slavery movement, they're radicalized, uh, uh, and the Grimke sisters sort of stand up to the charges that they've overstepped the boundaries of women's sphere in their anti-slavery activism, most notably with Sarah's pioneering feminist treaties, letters on the equality of the sexes, and they contribute something very important to the discourse of the time and an analogy between racism and sexism as, as, as twin systems uh, of oppression. And this sets the stage for Seneca Falls and for the inauguration of a formal women's rights movement. So this is an important story, but one in which the Grimkeys fade in importance in the 1850s as the uh, fledgling women's rights movement hits a sort of wall, isn't able to 
gain much support in the antebellum period. And as the Garrisonians become so radical as to, in the traditional story, marginalize themselves uh, and make way for the, the emergence of the more mainstream free soil parties. The different way of looking at the Grimkes would be to observe that they illustrate, as do many other important figures from the era, the ways in which abolitionism was a radical threat to traditional hierarchies, not only to the the line between black and white and public and private and male and female spheres, also to the line between north and south. And this, these multiple threats to these traditional divisions, if you will, uh, were perceived by a coalition of anti-abolition northerners and southerners as uh, terribly destructive and an attempt to neutralize those threats. The opponents of this sort of radical egalitarianism charged that the Grimke sisters and other female abolitionists were nothing less than treasonous and that they were in fact disunionists, that they harbored a sort of dark fantasy of national ruin, that they would push and alienate the South uh, uh, and, and bring a destructive civil war as a result of their intemperate and indeed fanatical agitation, uh, as the language of the time uh, would have it. Now, uh, I argue in my book that these charges, accusations of disunionism leveled at abolitionists because of a fear of their radical social agenda is, is the principal political weapon used against them, uh, and that it is a charge that um, is uh, soon leveled also at the free soil parties, however much they might try to distance themselves from Garrisonian uh, disunionism. Uh, they, uh, they're unable to do so, uh, and uh, in, in the minds of their critics, anyone who opposes slavery represents this radical egalitarian threat. One of the striking things about the article to me is your narrative of the anti-abolitionism that was raging not just in the South but in the North, and you mentioned one particularly shocking incident in May 1838 where female abolitionists are meeting in Philadelphia, and the building that they're meeting in is uh, burned to the ground by anti-abolitionists. Can you help us understand why uh, anti-abolitionists in the North were so enraged at uh, these women abolitionists who gathered in Philadelphia? Well, there was a strong sense consensus indeed that was sort of part of the separate spheres ideology or ideology of true womanhood that women's designated role in civic life to the extent that they had one was to serve as mediators and there are many many things about the participation of women in particular that bother the anti-abolitionists their public speaking was perhaps the biggest irritant. Nothing was considered more inappropriate for women than public speaking. It was uh, exposing oneself to the gaze of strange men, speaking before promiscuous audiences, as the language of the day would have it, usurping the place and role of, of men. So again, women's abolitionism perceived as a threat to traditional uh, social uh, social hierarchies. The, and, and as a result, you have the sort of very mavens of domesticity, those women who consider it their job to uphold this standard of true womanhood, such as Catherine Beecher, attacking folks like the Grimke sisters rhetorically and charging them with having uh, abdicated this role of mediators and instead taken up the mantle of agitator. And in the minds of people like Catherine Beecher and Sarah Josepha Hale, uh, the Grimke sisters were, uh, f again, functionally disunionist. Their moral critique of slavery would alienate the South 
uh, and cause civil war. And, and it's important to note that one of the special contributions of these female abolitionists was not only to draw an analogy between sexism and racism, but to call attention to the prevalent sexual exploitation of female slaves by their masters. This was a, a topic that even some male abolitionists were too squeamish to touch. But women such as Lydia Maria Child and then, of course, Harriet Jacobs do bring this to the fore, and this is seen as a sort of particularly divisive and loaded charge. After talking about the incident in Philadelphia, uh, you write that this violent backlash further radicalized some of the immediatists, and in the 1840s, Garrison himself, that is William Lloyd Garrison, would develop the theme the Grimkes had articulated, the notion that slavery and not disunion was the ultimate horror. In your book as well, uh, you talk about Garrison, and you make the point that Garrison has often been considered the quintessential abolitionist, and we think of him as sort of representing the movement as a whole. But your comment in the article, I think, suggests that Garrison was building on the ideas and actions of the Grimkes, and certainly in your book, you talk about him building on the work of others. Can you talk a little bit about how Garrison was not simply acting on his own, but also Absolutely. the product of a the, movement. This is something well established now, again, by recent scholarship. The pioneers of immediatism were African-American abolitionists, male and female, in uh, the cities of the North, Boston, Philadelphia, and New York principally, uh, and uh, David Walker, the most uh, famous uh, of these, but women such as Sarah Mapps Douglas in Philadelphia were also essential, Maria Stewart of Boston, and, and others, and Garrison openly borrows from uh, from their uh, sort of political program, particularly their opposition to colonization. That's Garrison's entree into immediatism, and, and much of the sort of early uh, issues of the liberator is, is, is dedicated to uh, the anti-colonization rhetoric which black uh, abolitionists had, had pioneered. So he is very much in their debt and, and acknowledges this. He sees uh, women... Uh, as uh, as a great uh, sort of weapon in his arsenal, people like Sarah Maps Douglas and, and the Grimkeys, because they can testify to the the sort of uh, the sufferings of female slaves uh, in the system. But he, in particular, sees Southerners as important allies in the movement. The Grimkeys are the great exception to the rule that white Southern women didn't support abolitionism, but they're an important exception because, as Southerners. They could do, as Frederick Douglass and other fugitive slaves could do, they could say to skeptical northern audiences, we have lived in the system. We offer you firsthand testimony. And this was important to Garrison because he and other abolitionists faced the sort of problem of disbelief. Northerners simply didn't want to believe what they had to say about slavery. Garrison is radicalized by events such as the burning of Pennsylvania Hall in 1838, so much so that by the early 1840s he's saying, you know what, we are disunionists. And we mean not that we are, intend to build a secession movement in Massachusetts. We mean that, and again, here he's tearing a page from black abolitionists, we mean that the existing union based on immoral compromises is a sort of a hollow mockery and that that false union has to be destroyed in order for a real union to be to be reared. And this is shows the influence of the Grimke sisters who had countered the charges of disunionism by saying there's something worse than disunion. Slavery is worse than disunion. Uh, and, and this helps to nerve Garrison to take his own disunion position. In addition to the Grimke sisters, your other case study that you talk about in the article is the Wilmot Proviso and the debate about it. And you make the point that both supporters and opponents of the proviso used a gendered language. 
some examples that you give in one uh, comment in the article, you say that opponents of the proviso derided the, quote, mawkish sensibilities and, quote, sickly morbid philanthropy. And you write that such language was, of course, deeply gendered. Can you explain how this was gendered language? Well, as a number of uh, studies have shown, going back to Ann Douglas's pioneering feminization of American culture and work by Jane Tompkins and other scholars of 19th century Victorian literature, they've noted this uh, ways in which um, uh, a sentimental rhetoric, a sort of fascination with suffering and death and dying in Victorian culture was, was gendered female. So this is a sort of well-established uh, connection, and they've pointed to iconic uh, passages in literature, the death of Little Eva and Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, principally uh, as examples of how this sort of extreme empathy and excessive sensitivity was gendered female in this in this day and age. So one of the things anti-abolitionists charged was that in their attention to the suffering of slaves, male abolitionists were in effect. Uh, acting like women uh, were falling prey to sentiment uh, and not making rational calculations, Free Soilers answered these charges by disavowing, uh, as the quotes you read suggest, by disavowing these kind of um, this kind of excessive sentimentality and by claiming to make an anti-slavery case based on rational, namely gendered uh, male uh, principles. You, you make the point also that supporters of the proviso, including Wilmot himself, used their own version of gender language, and you quote Congressman Wood of New York, uh, warning of the dangers of supporting the South and slavery, and uh, he says that any man who would, quote, encircle himself in the arms of the South, let me say that an infamy awaits him deeper and blacker than the pit of perdition. There is no high-minded Southern man, but will look upon him with contempt. He may use him, but he will despise him. Reading your discussion... This seems to be clearly uh, a, a sexual, gendered kind of reference. How can these kinds of passages have been have existed for decades without historians sort of seeing the gender dimension of it? Well, uh, again, it, this is uh, really it's thanks to the emergence of of the field of uh, history of masculinity that we can appreciate that what we have at work in passages like this is rival notions of masculinity and of, and of uh, what, how the ideal man should behave. We've known for a long time that gender aspersions were a sort of staple of antebellum politics, but uh, it, it, it needs to be noted that a sort of 21st century reader would be would be struck by how unabashed uh, political antagonists were in this period uh, in in uh, in tearing down the manhood of their uh, of their opponents, as the uh, a number of scholars have noted. In, in the sort of broadest sense, the rival masculinities of the period were a sort of restrained masculinity uh, based on a kind of ethos of, of conscience uh, inflected by evangelical perfectionism. Uh, very popular in the North, and uh, what we might call a martial manhood, a, an honor-based, uh, 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 sort of a more uh, aggressive, belligerent uh, uh, ideal of manhood uh, in which one's external reputation rather than the dictates of conscience uh, sort of uh, drove behavior. Uh, and uh, this very popular in the South, it's important to note that neither uh, ideal dominates either section. There's a, there's a tension between them in both places, but but we see these these rival images mobilized again and again in the rhetoric on both sides. An example of what you're just talking about could be the discussion around Preston Brooks' caning of Charles Sumner 
1856 in, in the U.S. Senate. Uh, how does gender fit in there? Well, this is a, a sort of well-known story, but again, seen through a history of masculinity lens, we can see that the main protagonists are symbolic of, of, uh, of anxieties and, and of images of the divergent gender conventions of the two sections. Brooks, the man who administers the caning to Sumner, is in northern eyes a symbol of the rapaciousness of the South, of the uh, uh, self-control problems that Southern men have, of their propensity to violence, and he's a symbol of the ways in which the, the kind of uh, uh, immorality of the plantation system had crept into American public life and posed a threat to the the sort of homes and peace uh, of the North. In Southern eyes, Sumner himself is seen as symbolic of the submissiveness, the effeminacy, the helplessness of Northern men who Southerners charged hid behind the petticoats of abolitionist women uh, and uh, and didn't have the manhood to, to defend themselves. So uh, again, if you look at the coverage of the Sumner incident, you see uh, attacks on uh, 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 the manhood of, uh, of, of Northerners and Southerners fly back and forth. In your New York Times article, you make the point that during uh, the period of the 1850s when this debate is heating up, that women are involved, not only on the abolitionist side, uh, through a book like Uncle Tom's Cabin, but also in response to Uncle Tom's Cabin, and you discuss a book called Aunt Phyllis's Cabin, a, a book that is not as well known. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, this is a a sort of illustration of the politicization of women, that that uh, narrative to which I alluded. As Uncle Tom's Cabin hits the, uh, uh, the, the uh, press, as it were, Southern women are called upon to respond in kind. The Uncle Tom's Cabin escalates a longstanding literary war over slavery, and Southern women are called upon to defend the system in print against the charges that Stowe levels. And someone like Mary Eastman, who steps forward to do just that, presenting a sort of rose-colored view of plantation life, uh, represents, in some sense, the paradox of conservative women's activism, which is an interesting theme throughout the antebellum period. People like Catherine Beecher, Sarah Hale, Louisa McCord, Mary Eastman step forward to achieve public notoriety, arguing in behalf of a order, a social order in which women should essentially be private uh, 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 beings. Uh, they they, they uh, achieve renown defending the traditional order in which women weren't supposed to achieve renown. So there's a paradox there, but it, it, it's, a, it's a symptom of the, of the politicization of women. The debate is also a sign and symptom of this the perceived divergence and antagonism of the two gender systems. Stowe positioned herself as a mainstream figure. She did not affiliate with the Garrisonians, did not affiliate with the women's rights movement. She wanted her book to be able to be claimed by all Northerners, uh, certainly. But in the eyes of Southerners, she was an example of the worst radical isms of uh, of the North. She was a she was a, a disunionist, a women's rights advocate, and an immediatist, uh, and so on. So uh, the, the, that that her own self-image and her perception in the South could so diverge tells us something about the, this, again, this perception of an incompatibility between the two systems. You mentioned that in addition to relatively well-known white women like Harriet Beecher Stowe, that black women also played a very active part 
in this debate, both free and enslaved. And you mentioned the case of Jane Johnson, a fugitive slave who's rescued by the Underground Railroad. Can you tell us a little bit more about her? Well, she represents the many, many African-American women who resisted slavery, slave resistance, we now understand better uh, than at any uh, other sort of point in the histori- gra- uh, development of the historiography. Uh, slave women's resistance is, is integral to the story of the coming of the war and the uh, role of the Underground Railroad and, and, uh, and its many auxiliaries in protesting the Fugitive Slave Act is the most dramatic example of this, although certainly not, not the only one. We know that slave resistance and women's slave resistance covered a very, very broad spectrum uh, of, of acts from ones that were sort of relatively private and small scale uh, to uh, acts of resistance that were more visible. This is on the sort of more visible end of the spectrum. Johnson was a slave woman who... Um, accompanied her master to the north. The Philadelphia Vigilance Committee, an uh, African-American-led abolitionist organization uh, that was the heart of the Underground Railroad in that city, contacted Johnson through its various channels, alerting her that she could claim her freedom if she set foot uh, on uh, northern soil uh, while docked at Philadelphia. Uh, members of the Vigilance Committee met her uh, on board uh, the uh, ship uh, on which she'd come north with her master, and they literally, when she professed her desire to be free, they literally spirited her away from the scene out of the clutches of her enraged master. And a, a court case followed that was covered in the press, uh, as were many of these clashes over fugitive slaves and over the fugitive slave law in the, in the 1850s. And for abolitionists, she represented the, the uh, deep yearning for freedom and the, the dignity and heroism of slave women. She literally came out of hiding to testify on behalf of those abolitionists who were on trial for her quote-unquote abduction. So she's a, she's a figure who reminds us that as, as, as rightly as, and as much as we might admire Harriet Tubman, there are literally countless other African-American women who uh, either fled slavery or who aided those who fled slavery uh, and, and, uh, and, and um, made the, the uh, fugitive slave law part of the Compromise of 1850 a... a, a, a uh, sort of key political issue in the deterioration of, of, uh, of sectional relations. In arguing for a gendered reading of the origins of the Civil War, you, in your magazine article, you argue that this approach has a very distinct pedagogical payoff. That is, it, it will be an aid in teaching. Can you tell us how this is so? Well, I think that the, the main way in which there's a payoff is that it helps conjure for students the high stakes of the conflict when, when you... Let students know that what's at stake in these debates is we, you know, we march them through the the, the standard of events, and sometimes uh, their eyes will, you know, roll as the words Wilmot Proviso or Compromise of 1850, you know, come across the, uh, you know, uh, across the board there. But it's a way of infusing these these seemingly familiar events with some new meanings by underscoring the high stakes of each of these clashes. What was at stake? for Americans on both sides was their sort of elemental sense of self and identity, of their sense of who they were as men and women, their, their sense that their families would be safe, their, their sense that they were good and right uh, and righteous. And, and uh, gender history helps us recover this high, sense of, uh, of high stakes of, of, of the period. 
So can you see this kind of approach being used not only in college classrooms but on the high school level? I think that one absolutely can. I I can note that a second payoff is that, frankly, some female students who come into a class on the Civil War expecting only to hear about male politicians and generals are are surprised and motivated and in some cases inspired to find that this is a story in which women are central. But I would also say, though it may seem on the face of it that, uh, you know, our observations about the social construction of gender and, and, and uh, masculinity and so on may seem a little abstract for high school students. In fact, to propose to high school students that Americans were struggling over rival ideals of femininity and rival masculinities, I think, really hits them where they live. I think that they would have a very intuitive understanding of, of, of that kind of struggle and that uh, this is absolutely something uh, that they can, they can comprehend and Uh, and learn from. Well, this has been fascinating talking with you. I want to thank you again, Liz, for joining us for the podcast. My pleasure.